Well, we are on our final lap of this month-long race that has become uh, kind of a cherished tradition around here. Uh, this series that we do on an annual basis that we call Hope Lives. Uh, I hope it's been a real incredible experience for you if you've been tracking. Uh, if you have, you know that uh, this is a bit of a, a different spin this year in our Hope Lives series because we've been kind of journeying down two kind of parallel tracks. On the one hand, we've been profiling uh, our child survival program, or at least the child survival program done by uh, Compassion, uh, a ministry partner of ours that we are involved with in Uganda and learning about all of the wonder and opportunity that that presents us as a church to be able to partner with them. And then at the same time, while we've been weaving that video in and out of each service, we've also been weaving in and out of each message the parable of the Good Samaritan and trying to challenge ourselves and discover what it would look like to live like that to a greater degree. If you missed any of the weeks, um, Tim Arnold started us off by introducing the idea of enough, kind of redefining our enough so that others could live with enough. And in that sense, to live like a good Samaritan. And then Annie DeRoss, the next week, interviewed a bunch of real-life good Samaritans in our community across all of our locations who were living this way of life out in each of our locations' anchor causes. And we learned just how grateful and thankful and, and just how much significance and fulfillment each of them got to enjoy by living that way in the way that Jesus calls life abundant. And then last week, Mike looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan in detail and you know, helped us understand that you know, one of the things the parable illustrates is that there really is no us and them when it comes to helping people in need. That from God's perspective, we're all a we together. We're all on the same page, loved deeply by God, but deeply in need of the love of God and his work and grace and mercy in our lives. And so with these two kind of parallel tracks, what we want to do today is try to actually unite them into one thrilling and ongoing adventure. This is not the end of the road. Uh, this last uh, morning in our Hope Lives series, this is the beginning of a, a much more exciting ongoing journey for us as a community. And the way that we want to tie these together is by looking at the broader picture of the story that contains the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because the parable of the Good Samaritan is not just a standalone story. It's not the story, per se, that the biblical author who recorded Jesus telling that story intended to tell. In fact, the story that the biblical author told was of Jesus interacting with what the text describes as an expert in the law. A person very familiar with the religious customs and rules and traditions of their day. And in this larger story, he and Jesus have an interaction which causes Jesus to then tell the story of the Good Samaritan. It's the story within the larger story. And so we want to take a look at that larger story. And it's only in the, the punch of that larger story that we can really unpack the full weight of this series and God's vision for our lives personally and together as a community. And so uh, if you brought a Bible along or if you have a, a, a Bible app uh, on your smartphone or your, your personal device, uh, turn to chapter 10 of the biography of Jesus written by Luke. It's Luke chapter 10. And we're going to begin today at the beginning of this larger story 
uh, in verse 25 where it says this. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You might not notice there's some nuances in this introductory verse that kind of introduce the drama that's starting to unfold here. Um, For starters, this expert in the law stands up, which culturally in Jesus' day was a form of respect. The, the, The expert was honoring Jesus at least by standing up. And and then on top of that, he refers to him as teacher, another reference of honor and respect. So you you think that he's being real submissive and, and eager to be influenced by Jesus. But the text says that he stood up and he called him teacher, but he did that, it says, to test him. To test him. His heart was not to honor Jesus. His, his heart was to test Jesus, to put him into a corner, to, to kind of debunk his teaching. And so already you get the sense that this expert, while he may know the religious law, he actually has a very dark and deceptive and manipulative heart. And then with the question that he asks, it kind of leads to that as well, where he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Everyone knows there's nothing you can do to inherit anything. And inheritance is something that someone else gives you. So it's kind of an impossible question that he poses at Jesus to answer. But I suppose at some sense he's trying to ask the age-old question of what a person needs to do to experience life forever with God for eternity in heaven. And so he and Jesus have this bit of back and forth where Jesus actually, if you read on, he answers the original question with another question. He says, well, you know, what do you see in the scriptures? How do you read them? And then the expert, being an expert in the law and expert of religious things, says, well, you know, you've got to, as I read it, you've got to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. Kind of summarizing the law and the prophets and in, in, uh, what it says in Deuteronomy that Jesus, in his public ministry, had also affirmed. And so in this little conversation back and forth, Jesus affirms that as well. And he says, you've answered well. And he says, do this and you will live. And you kind of get the sense that, you know, this little drama, this little testing might be over with this little back and forth and back and forth. But in reality, it's just begun. Because in verse 29 of Luke chapter 10, it says this. It says, but the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is very important that he wanted to justify himself. And so he pushed Jesus on this idea of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself by trying to kind of get him on a technicality of sorts. If you uh, read commentaries, they'll they'll often indicate here that... um, kind of conventional understanding was that the definition of your neighbor was your relative or your friend. And so he kind of expected Jesus to say, well, of course, you know, you've got to love your relative and your friend. And then his goal of justifying himself would have been achieved. He would have been able to leave vindicated. He didn't need Jesus. He didn't need anything that he was peddling because he was already doing that in his mind. He was already loving his relatives and his friends. But it's in response to this question, this technicality of who is my neighbor, that Jesus then responds by providing the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's no wonder then that he uses in this story of someone who was attacked by robbers and left to, the side of the, to lie on the side of the road half dead, 
that in this parable, Jesus refers to some characters that are a priest and a Levite, people of high religious authority and esteem, people who would have been, you know, kind of by status respected by this expert in the law. And in both those cases, as we learned last week, um, instead of helping the half-dead person on the side of the road, they chose to cross to the other side because of what would have been in some sense some religiously, you know, legalistically justifiable reasons. That's what Mike helped us unpack last week by discovering that, you know, because this guy lying on the road wasn't clothed, you couldn't really identify whether he was a friend or relative. You couldn't know whether he was technically your neighbor, so you may as well kind of avoid it and stay away. And more to that, because the text says the guy was half dead, a person looking at this person wouldn't be able to determine that they were all the way dead unless they got really kind of up close and touched them and heaven forbid they might become contaminated or ceremonially unclean and it just it just got too complicated and so from their existing religious paradigm it actually made sense to them to cross the other side and avoid helping the half dead man and the expert in the law also seeking to justify himself could relate to that but then jesus says the hero of the story is the Samaritan, a person of religious disdain to that expert in the law. But, you know, even though he was disrespected by him in, in, in the story, you know, if you were here last week, you learned that he, he got up close and personal. He administered first aid. And he took the half-dead man, you know, kind of carried him on his shoulder and then on his animal and took him to a nearby inn and told the innkeeper to look after him and that he would be back to follow up with them, indicating some kind of longer-term establishment of relationship. And he told the innkeeper that he would cover every, any expense, anything that it would take to, to help this man's healing and recovery, demonstrating a, a willingness to sacrifice and be generous. And what this Samaritan demonstrates by his compassion and by his commitment to ongoing relationship and by his sacrifice and his generosity is not a heart that was justified in avoiding helping, but just a heart that exuded mercy. And so at the end of the parable, the Good Samaritan, we come back to the, to the bigger story where the trapper finds himself trapped. And in verse 36 of Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The man asked Jesus, in a desire to test him, in a desire to justify himself, he said, who is my neighbor? Do you notice Jesus never answered that question? Jesus didn't answer, who is my neighbor? Jesus told a story and then asked, which of those people was a neighbor? Because Jesus didn't want to finagle the laws and the rules and the stipulations for people who wanted to justify themselves. Jesus wanted to get to his heart. A heart that was trying to test him and a heart that was trying to justify who he had or didn't have to help. 
And Jesus' goal was to get him to live more like the Samaritan in the parable, not in what he was doing, but in who he was being, in having a heart that just exuded mercy instead of a heart that sought to justify why you didn't have to help. Well, gang, for us today, uh, this makes this a, a much more difficult conversation, I think, for us to have because uh, instead of looking at things that we could do and creating a, a kind of a to-do list with some boxes that we can check, our responsibility in response to this larger story is to actually take a look at our hearts and, and to examine our hearts and to ask which of those characters in the larger story we most resemble. You know, do we most resemble the good Samaritan or do we most resemble, not the priest and Levite, do we most resemble the expert in religious law and which of those characters represents our heart the most? Do we have a heart of mercy that just oozes and exudes mercy whenever, wherever? Or do we have a heart that's quicker to justify why we don't really have to help and make much of a difference? Being completely honest, if I, uh, if I search my own heart and reflect on the last number of years and even decades of my own life, I think there are really two reasons why I would kind of default at times to justifying why I don't have to live like a good Samaritan. I think that one of those Mike touched on last week, it's, it's common to our broader society, the idea that in some sense, that's what governments are for. I think a lot of times we, we look at our paychecks and we see the difference between the, the gross pay and the, the net pay and we look at the difference of that and we think, you know, that's already a whole lot of sacrifice. And, and in contributing those taxpayer dollars to our governments, you know, we, we, we bankroll what we call our social safety net. You know, the supports in our society, things like welfare and detox and, you know, unemployment lines and job placements and, and uh, you know, housing help and hospitals and health buses and so many things designed to help people, you know, live a more productive life and get back on their feet and, and be restored from difficult times. And for many of us, we think, you know, I, I'm justified in not doing anything myself, anything really hands-on, because that's what my taxpayer dollars go to support. I pay experts to do that. And we can kind of write off our own responsibility to be difference makers in our society and in some sense, justifiably by our culture because that's what governments are there to do. But I think that there's also a second reason, at least if I'm honest with myself, um, that's a little more specific to those of us in the church. And in some sense, it's a little more controversial and I, I admit I'm treading lightly into it today, but if I'm honest with myself and I'm honest with how I see, especially the, the church these days in the developed world, kind of the 21st century North American or the broader developed church, I see what I would call the way we view missionaries as a whole nother ingredient that can trigger a self-justification in our hearts sort of the, the missionary model of how we meet needs, I think hurts us as much as it helps us from time to time. 
Don't want to spend too much time talking about the, the impact of this on the ground, but I mean, just a few moments on the impact, just on missionaries, these, these select kind of rare breed of people who actually really want to live like good Samaritans to the nth degree and go to the farthest places in the corners of the earth. But unfortunately, in the way that our kind of classic model, our religious construct today views that, we often send them on their way with a prayer and a pat on the back to be on their own in a completely foreign culture where they have very little familiarity and expertise with limited gifts and a very small kind of support base, very under-resourced. And then, in many cases, gang, we demand that they, in addition to trying to do the mission they feel called to do, to kind of be distracted from that with the half or sometimes full-time burden of, you know, donor relations and marketing and everything that goes in to fundraising. And it's just a tough life that we force people who want to live like good Samaritans to live. But that's not half of it. Because what happens, and I know I've been guilty of this myself, what happens when you kind of adopt this missionary mindset where there's a select few people who are to make a difference around the world is that just like in our broader society with the government, you assume that because they're doing it, we don't have to. That our church, so long as we've got a few missionaries out on the missions field doing something, that we as a church are doing something and we can tell our friends at dinner parties that we're doing something because we can tell the stories of missionaries who are courageous enough to try to live like good Samaritans. And I'll tell you, gang, it was about a decade ago that God started to press really seriously into a heart like mine and in the heart of those of us who have been leading around here um, and to really try to reevaluate this, not just societal mentality, but this, this mentality of how church works, at least in the context of, of our church. I remember you know, five or six years into being involved in leading around here. And I would have thought that we were doing a great job. We were a great church and we were growing like crazy and lots of buzz and excitement and hype. And people were really into, you know, what we were doing in Sundays. And, and all of a sudden, a group of us read a book that asked a real simple question. I've shared it many times before. It said, if your church up and disappeared, would anyone really notice? Are you known in your surrounding community and around the world as difference makers? Or another word for good Samaritans. And I was haunted by the lack of evidence that we had to point to that. I was haunted with the lack that I was living that in my own life. I was haunted by the lack of uh, the way we were inviting people into that. And it caused us to, to totally reevaluate things. And thankfully, God used that brokenness for some really incredible work in the last decade relocated our church to put us in proximity to need and started getting us flexing our, you know, muscles of living like good Samaritans in a whole bunch of different ways that one thing led to another. And all of a sudden our church was home to the largest homeless shelter in the Niagara region. And I've said many times before that that homeless shelter that we have at our Glenridge location was not just intended to be a shelter to serve and support homeless people. It was intended to be a playground to change the hearts of those of us who were part of that church. To help us experience greater degrees of compassion. To help us foster greater degrees of ongoing relationship where we could become friends with people who were formerly marginalized but now we saw as equals under God as us. And greater degrees of 
sacrifice and generosity, the kind of heart attitudes that the Good Samaritan demonstrates that would cause us over time to begin to ooze and exude mercy. And what's been so cool in the last number of years is as we've expanded into a multi-site church, we've been able to replicate that DNA and that way of life through what we've profiled this last month called our our location-specific anchor causes. And so many of us these days are involved in these not as something to do, but as people to be so that God can change us from the inside out and we can exude hearts of mercy more than demonstrating hearts that justify why we don't have to be people and families that need to help and make a difference. And what's been really cool about this Hope Live series this year is the way that we've been able to share with you how recently we've been able to to kind of mirror this work of God in our local anchor causes and apply it globally as well. For a number of years, we wrestled with that. How can we replicate this cool thing that God's doing locally and helping us to live more like good Samaritans and do it on a global scale as well where people are so far away? We thought, you know, instead of this traditional missionary model where only a few of us experience that way of life, what would it look like for us to be able to leverage and develop every single follower of Jesus in our community to live like a missionary with a global perspective every day, whether they ever get on a plane for the rest of their lives or not? And a similar question that we asked corporately is what it would would look like if all of us, instead of doing our own individual things, if all of us pooled our resources together and focused them into one thing where we could make the kind of significant difference that none of us could make on our own. And those two questions of maximizing the number of of missionaries and maximizing the degree of impact that we could have, that's what's gone into our global approach represented by the videos that we've been watching this last month. You know, on the collective side, we've been able to partner with Compassion, an expert in child development for the last 50 years, who works with local churches and believers in third world countries, people who want to be good Samaritans just like us, who are indigenous to their culture and familiar with it and invested in it and committed to the long, for the long haul. And it wraps their arms of expertise and support around them so that they can be the church there. And then we can resource and fuel that and celebrate the work that God is doing through all of us together in partnership. But as much as that's starting to maximize our collective impact, that alone could still lend itself to, lent, to letting us off the hook to being kind of an out of sight, out of mind, yeah, my church is doing something so I don't have to, way of justifying. So we've really focused in these last number of years on how to focus in on developing each of us as missionaries as well. And our primary kind of on-ramp to that way of life is uh, an open house event that we call Passport that you'll see in your mini mag we're offering again in November. Our passport event then leads to a six-month kind of a boot camp experience for global missions that we call our Global Action Plan, where you can study and read and experience group discussion and engage in some activities and exercises and, and group experiences in order to flex some of those muscles to a greater degree. And then tying those two things together, the personal Global Action Plan and our corporate investment in our child survival programs, is the encouragement that we give everyone across our locations, but especially those in our global action plan, 
to participate in child sponsorship. Again, in partnership with Compassion, where linking these together, we as a church can actually sponsor kids who are graduates from our child survival programs in Ecuador and in Uganda and soon in Indonesia. It's just a cool picture of what God is developing as he's stirring us up as a community to not only maximize our impact, but maximize the number of us who are living lives as global missionaries every day. And we're starting to see God do some really cool things. You got to know that this Hope Live series, even though it ends today, it's not the end of this journey. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we can still do. And even uh, you'll notice in your mini mag between now and Christmas, there's kind of a a Hope Lives kind of roadmap or or inventory for you to follow where locally you can engage in our Christmas initiative for the anchor cause of your location called Southridge Special Delivery. And globally, you can do a bunch of things that lead into the Christmas season. You can can relate to your sponsored child with some uh, disproportionately, you know, Christmas-oriented experiences and letters and things. Um, You can shop differently and experience, probably most specifically, the largest free trade sale in the entire Niagara region that our Vineland location hosts on two separate evenings through 10,000 villages. And maybe one of the coolest things this Christmas is you can give your friends and family and your kids, teachers and neighbors, whatever, one of the coolest Christmas gifts you'll ever give them that flows right out of our experience of this Hope Lives series. Your local hosts are going to tell you about it in just a moment. The point is there are still lots of things for us to do even though this Hope Lives series is over so long as we understand that it's not about doing, it's about being and allowing God to change our hearts. Because as he's been doing that in these last number of years, we've been able to see him do amazing things and learn some really awesome lessons. You know, the way that God's developed us locally, we've realized that there is an incredible need for a church full of people who are going to live like good Samaritans, who want to be missionaries right in their own backyard. Now, as much as there are government supports and as significant as they are and as effective as they can work, many times they're ineffective, not because they don't work, but because they can't work because the people who are in such marginalization and need and despair have a capacity that can't even access them. You know, they, they can't access those supports because they don't have a ride or they can't read or they can't fill out the paperwork or they can't adequately advocate for their medical attention or they, they don't have ID and there's, there's so many different logistical things and what they need that supports can't provide, at least government supports can't provide, it's just a friend. A friend who cares about them enough to hang out with them and journey with them and provide them some of those supports to thread the needle through the government supports. And these days, in many of us growing and becoming those good Samaritans and friends to the marginalized in our own anchor causes and our own locations... You know, we're becoming known as a significant social asset to the community around us, in addition to all of those government supports. Because instead of justifying our inactivity, because there's a whole bunch of stuff out there, we've stepped up and allowed ourselves to become difference makers. And globally, for sure, we're not there yet. This is all very new in our community in this last year or two. But I'll tell you, I'm thrilled to see the changes that I'm starting to see just in our way of life, the way that people are being. The sensitivities that people have to the global poor, to issues of environmentalism and materialism and consumption. The way that people are voluntarily 
eagerly, joyfully redefining their standards and definition of enough in order to free up more money to give away and to invest to help other people, you know, raise their enough. And the way people, even without getting on a plane, are starting to foster the kind of relationships, even with just their sponsor kids, where those pictures on the fridge and on our, on our walls are actually becoming functional parts of our families in our hearts. And over these next years, as we stay committed to this way of life growing in increasing ways, I think we're going to see God do even more incredible things so long, gang. So long as we remember that it's not about just doing a bunch of stuff. It's about an attitude of heart that Jesus points to today. It's about a heart that wants to ooze with compassion and ooze with mercy instead of justify why we don't need to get in the game. And you know, when we do, we actually start to tell the greatest story that Jesus ever told, the timeless story of God's activity throughout human history. Because the real story today isn't the parable of the Good Samaritan. It isn't the interaction between Jesus and the lawyer. It's the story God's been telling for thousands and thousands of years. Where he created his prized possession and loved us so much that even though we drifted and deviated and rebelled from him in sin, he sent his one and only son to rescue us. To live and die and rise again so his spirit could be alive today and invade our lives to change us, to make us different people. And for those of us who are following him, we can have his spirit living in us all together, making us the people and the good Samaritans he's always wanted us to be. And as we wrap up this series today, I just want to paint a little bit of a picture of what this can look like described in chapter 4 of, uh, of the book of Acts that describes the, the first century believers just after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It says in Acts chapter 4 that all the believers then, they were one in heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. It says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. All they were doing was living like good Samaritans, person after person after person, believer after believer after believer, popping like popcorn and joining together in this army of good Samaritans. And think about how compelling that vision is that says God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. Around here, we often say that the local church is the hope of the world. Do you know why we say that? Because when communities of faith will rise up together and allow the Spirit of God to invade them and change their hearts from the inside out in the kind of ways we're talking about today, there is nothing that God can't do. You know, governments can't provide uh, no needy persons among them. Only a handful of hardcore missionaries and churches can't deliver that reality. But if every believer decided from today on in, we're going to live that way, together we can. So let's challenge ourselves to be those people from here on in and to grow in this direction and cheer and encourage each other on to that kind of love and good deeds. 
so that most of all, we're no longer people who are known as justifying why we don't have to get in the game, but we're known as difference makers, both locally and beyond because of the way God is working in our heart through the resurrected life of Jesus Christ to ooze with his mercy for those in need. Let's pray. God in heaven, I want to thank you for the adventure that we've been able to be on this past month. I thank you for the, just all the work that's gone into even telling the story of your activity in Uganda. I pray that you would grip our hearts with the opportunity and possibilities that you've given us as a church. God, we celebrate what you're doing locally in our anchor causes around the Niagara region, and we celebrate now what you're also starting to do globally in our anchor cause of child survival. And I pray that together you would just grip us with the special opportunity that you've given us as a community. More than that, though, God, I pray that you would grip each of us today with the sober reality that none of us are intended to be excluded from this. None of us are intended to miss out, but rather every one of us is intended by you through your son's spirit's work in us to be the difference makers, to be the good Samaritans, and to rally together locally and globally to be the shining light and difference makers that you've intended your church throughout the generations to be. Help us to live out the picture that the local church can be the hope of the world and to just ooze that mercy that lets other people taste and see how good and merciful you are because of the way your spirit's living in us. We love you. We thank you for your faithfulness to have been doing that and to continue to do that. And we just look forward to watching you continue to work. In Jesus' strong name we pray, amen.